Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest today is Ellie Seymour talking about her novel The Royal Station Master's Daughters at War. Joanne Byrne will be chatting about her novel The Hemlock Cure based on the true story of the Derbyshire plague village of Eam. And best-selling romantic novelist Katie Ford will be discussing her latest novel A Wedding in Provence. Ellie, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment, but first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you. It's lovely to be here, Lee. Nice to have you, Ellie. And uh, just looking at your books, they've all been historical. Is this you? Is this a fascination with history that you have? I love history because I love the stories of the time and the people who lived through so many life-changing events. And that's what I try to highlight in my books, but give them the women's perspective. Yes, you are picking people at particular moments, aren't you? Particular changes. Most history books are written by men and they don't really go into much detail about the women's stories, the struggles that they face when their men go off to war and the aftermath of that and how does a community pick up the pieces again? And they were the stories that I wanted to write about um, in my trilogy. And of course, there are challenges when you're writing something set in the past about about getting it right. And this is within living memory. Yes. And I've had lovely letters from people saying how my books have brought back memories about Wolverton Station, about living there, about times there. And I put out a, a letter in the local newspaper asking for people to share stories with me going back to the Gallipoli War. I had lots of good response from that so I was able to get lots of accurate details and stories but I fictionalised fictionalised them Looking forward to talking to you about your novel very much but we'll hear your first choice of music in just a moment, is music important to you? Yes I love music but when I work I have to be very silent I don't play it then but at home I've got ceiling speakers so I can play music and dance around the house. Oh, I like that idea, ceiling speakers. And this one, uh, well, I bet this one sounds good on the ceiling speakers. Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. Why this one? So I chose this one because I first got to hear about Harry Sayward and his family who inspired my novels about the Royal Station Master because he was Brian's great-grandfather and his story had never been told before. So Harry was the Royal Station Master from 1884 to 1924 so through Queen Victoria's time Edward VII, George V and he welcomed royal families and political leaders from all over England and the world to Wolferton Station they all stepped foot on his platform Brian wanted me to tell his story so I dedicate this song to him and I asked him what was his choice for this programme and this is what he chose Yeah this is for you Brian Out on the streets of a runaway American dream 
And that was Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen, the first choice of music from our featured guest on Bookmark today, Ellie Seymour. Ellie's first book, The Shop Girls, came out in 2014, a memoir about life in a Cambridge department store between the 1940s and 60s. It became a Sunday Times best read of the year. Her first novel of the Royal Station Master's Daughters trilogy came out last year, and the second, The Royal Station Master's Daughters at War, was published last month. Well, Ellie, we'll find out the backstory to this in just a moment, but it's just out, so for people who haven't read it, what's the novel about? It picks up from the first novel, which was set in 1915, and book two is set in 1917. Many of the estate workers from Sandringham went to fight in Gallipoli, but by this time, many of the bodies had not yet been discovered, so their wives and mothers and sisters back home in Wolford, turning on the Sandringham estate, didn't know if their men were dead or alive. So I pick up on that, and then I pick on upon other events at the time that were happening. So, for example, it was around this time that the first Women's Land Army started, and that started at Sandringham. So Sandringham Farm was like pioneering to promote women working on the farm, and the women who work there were actually filmed, and this film was shown all around the world to encourage women not to wear petticoats, but to wear breeches. And I also write about things like the National Egg Collection, which isn't written about in men's history books, but it would have affected every family in the country because every family was asked to donate eggs to British servicemen in base hospitals in France and Belgium. And over 32 million were collected, and they would be sent free of charge by railways and take only three days to arrive. And so they would have left from Wolferton Station and Queen Alexandra was a patron. So that's how I managed to weave in my royal storyline. So it's a sort of snapshot of life really on the land and the families who who work the land, who who work around the land near Sandringham. It is. And so I have uh, three sisters, um, Harry's daughters, plus a relative that turns up out of the blue in book one and uh, is from the wrong side of the family, if you like, and how she has to make her way and prove herself at a time when people were very snobbish and uh, but then very proud to be connected to the royal family. And how did you first hear about the story? Because some of it is based on truth. I was just interested in writing a story about the women left behind from the Gallipoli campaign and how did they manage, because the Sandringham Estate is a very small community, how did they pick up the pieces and we never hear about that. So that is what I started to research and then I was very much encouraged by Brian Heath who really wanted Harry's story to be told. And Brian is? Brian is the great-grandson of Harry. And Harry was the station master. He was the royal station master and his wife in real life was the postmistress. At one time, in like 27 years, there were 645 royal special trains that uh, steamed in and out of Sa- in Sandringham and Harry wrote about this in a railway magazine. So we have that on archive. And Wolferton Station, it, that's a real station? It was a real station, so today obviously it's closed. Last closed to the public, so it's a public station as well, in 1969, but the royal family used it up until 1965. And when you're basing something on uh, a real story and real people, how much wriggle room do you give yourself to uh, fictionalise? If I'm interviewing somebody who's got in touch with me with their story, I would... Um, 
fictionalize it and have a different name but tell them that I was doing this and then let them read what I was writing. One lady contacted me to say that one of her descendants who died in Gallipoli, the mother had 10 children and they all had to leave the estate because that's what was done in those times. They lived in a tied cottage and they ended up in the workhouse. So that's a story that I've written about in book three. Bringing to life those stories and how did families cope when they were faced in those desperately difficult situations. But then having a bit of uplift about it as well because it can't be too depressing. You have to have humour. Well, that was what was struck well. me was, was the, the uplift of the romance. But also these are families that are out in the countryside and we often think that the countryside wasn't that affected by... World War One, but you show just how the effects have rippled out. Around the Sandringham estate, it was bombed. Was there um, really a hospital there? Because in the novel, there was, a, there was a cottage hospital nearby, I believe, at Castle Rising. I've sort of changed that, but lots of country homes were taken over at that time to be used as cottage hospitals. And there's an issue also uh, about class. I mean, class is still yes. very prevalent in yeah. there. What kind of class would the Saywoods have been? Middle class. They were comfortable. They've got a housekeeper. They, they had the most. They had a housekeeper, and they had the most beautiful house. Royal Station Master's house was, you know, a very, very grand, detached house with a turret. Would have had a telephone. They would have had a bathroom. And Harry was very highly regarded by the royal family. And when he retired, he was given a cottage to live in for the rest of his life on the estate with a, a new bath. And the king came to see him before he died. And the king and queen, they are in the novel, or certainly yeah. their residences in the novel. Obviously, they're the kind of upper end of the class spectrum. How did you research Sandringham and how they lived there? I read lots of books, but also I was um, helped by Brian Colson, who's a head guide at Sandringham House. So Brian lives in one side of the Royal Station, in the Royal Retiring Rooms. So that was the original side. And the other side of the platform is another suite of Royal Retiring Rooms, and Richard Brown lives there. And that side, he allows people to walk up and down the platform, you know, visitors. And he has my book there. He's very proud of it. He feels he's been part of this journey. And so they've both been very helpful, but it's uh, Ben Colson who has all the royal stories. So how much of what you're writing about is still there? Could you still footstep, as it were? Could you still do that as a form of research? There are many stories that haven't been told. I mean, I would love to do that. And also, I subscribe to the London Digital Library, so I can actually read the newspaper of the day, and they give great detail about royal visits. I tell you what, time train, they're due in, in advance all the sort of thousands of spectators who line the path. You get great vivid descriptions from the newspaper of the day. Well, let's stay with that theme of truth and fiction and hear now from Joanne Byrne. Joanne Byrne's first novel, Petals and Stones, was published in 2018 and her second, The Hemlock Cure, came out last month. Rosie Andrews, author of The Leviathan and a previous guest on this show, described it as deeply unsettling, Tense, yet ultimately hopeful. The hemlock cure, she says, sweeps the readers up into its potions, scents, colours and secrets. It is effective and beautifully observed, a mesmerising novel. Based on the true story of the village of Eam in Derbyshire that made the decision to shut itself off during the plague of the 17th century, when I met Joanne, we began by discussing that remarkable real-life story. It wasn't until... Um 
I was looking to move away from Sheffield um, to the Peak District that I discovered the story. It kind of surprises me now that I hadn't heard of it because I, I just feel that so many people I meet from all over the place have heard of it. It is a fascinating story, that kind of courage of shutting yourself away, going into essentially a kind of lockdown of the village to protect, you know, other places, you know, Bakewell and Sheffield, places where the, if the plague had arrived there, you know, it would have been just dev- devastating. As you say, it's sort of lo- uh, lockdown. So it's something that still has resonance for us today. Yes, it does. I mean, I had actually written The Hemlock Cure before the pandemic happened. So it was quite bizarre. I mean, I'd just finished writing it. So I'd been immersed in this kind of like world of plague and an Eames specifically. And when when the, pan, um, the COVID pandemic happened, I was struck by just the similarities, really. Um, although in the 17th century, they didn't know, you know, how the disease passed from person to person. You know, they understood about so- social distancing. Families were basically self-isolating. Historical record shows they even were keeping kind of 12 feet or three strides away from each other and markets and fairs and theatres and public spaces were kind of closed down. So there were all sorts of similarities and people had to get certificates to travel in places like London. Yeah, I mean, knowing the story as I do, I also think, you know, there's lots that we can kind of learn from that story in terms of personal sacrifice for the greater good and the importance of community. So what were your sources of research? I think because so much has been written about Eam and um, Eam has a kind of amazing museum, well staffed by Eam enthusiasts. <laughs> so you, know, you can kind of go there and find out anything you, you want to about the Eam story. You know, they're incredibly knowledgeable. I looked at the parish records, um, which are available online and those documents recorded you know the 260 deaths that occurred in that year beyond the eam story itself i mean in terms of other kinds of research because herbalism is so central to my fictional story because eam provides the background but the fictional story has a young woman who is the daughter of the village apothecary and it's her story there's various secrets and dark things going on in May's life that she doesn't quite understand at the start of the novel. The novel sees her discovering the truth. Herbal medicine and apothecary is at the centre of the novel. So I also had a lot of research to do in that kind of area. I was lucky enough to be able to go on some foraging walks with a medical herbalist, a local woman. And so that was absolutely fascinating. Whenever you're writing historical fiction, you know, reading literature and texts from that period in history is really helpful. So I was reading various sort of theological texts and Daniel Defoe's A Journal of the Plague Year and Samuel Pepys's Diary and some stuff by Nicholas Culpepper all around, you know, herbalism. Reading those kinds of texts and novels, journals, really gives you a sense of the kind of language of the time and the sort of sensibilities as well, you know, how people then were thinking and their opinions on things. I did a lot of research. I I couldn't have written a single sentence, I don't think, without finding out about how how people lived. I mean, material culture, just the day-to-day, what did the insides of people's homes look like and 
you know, what did they wear and what did they cook with? It just felt like, yeah, I was having to discover a whole new world. And I suppose there's a village itself as well that you can go to where there are still signs of, of that time. Yes, absolutely. And people flock to Eam. I mean, it's such an atmospheric place because I live close by. So I was able to go and just spend time wandering around the village and going into the church and the graveyard. There's a place called Cutlet Delph on the edge of the village, um, surrounded by trees. It's a kind of natural amphitheatre, really. And when the plague struck and the village made this incredible decision to go into a lockdown, at the same time, they also decided to close the church and shut off the church grounds as well so people couldn't be buried um, in the church churchyard. And they held um, their religious services out at Cutlet Dell. And that place is still there, you know, and you can see why they why they would have gathered there. It just has this sort of uh, lends itself to uh, it's kind of like a big wide open space because lots of the cottages still exist. The cottage where the plague first arrived, which was the tailor's house. So um, some cloth had arrived from London and it had carried rat fleas and that cottage still exists, as do various cottages around. So it is really, it's very fascinating. And I suppose as well as the practical research, you've got the thinking about what it would feel like to be in that isolated, small, frightened community. That is the thing that kind of struck me about the story. I mean, I got the idea initially because I we actually went to look at a house in Eam, um, a little a cottage, and I didn't know about the Eam story, but I went to view this cottage and it was the house that the, the herbalist from the 1665 outbreak, where, that's where he lived. So his name was Humphrey Merrill. So I was in this kind of incredibly atmospheric cottage, you know, low ceilings and kind of wide floorboards with sort of like worm eaten boards. And, you know, I kind of had this like, sense that, oh my goodness, I need to, one day I need to write a story set, not just in Eam, but, you know, in this house. Just being in Eam and hearing the story, I mean, that is the sense that you get, that sense of claustrophobia and that kind of, what that would have been like and felt like to make that decision to kind of shut yourselves away, knowing that, you know, it would have meant certain death for so many people. And in terms of the novel, you know, I'm very aware, like that's there in the background, but, you know, the Hemlock Cure through its fictionalist story um, is also kind of exploring the sort of psychological effects of being trapped, not, not just through the plague arrival. But the fictional story, to a certain extent, is about women pushing back against the constraints of their time. So it's about kind of ordinary women pushed to extraordinary actions. In the 17th century, you know, women had no rights and no recourse to any kind of policing or judicial system. So there's the Eam story happening, but that's kind of mirrored as well in my fictional story with my young protagonist living with with a kind of un, unknown threat she senses it she doesn't quite understand it there's secrets in the household that she's gradually uncovering but she has nowhere to go when she finally understands what's going on you know and that would have been the reality for women in the 17th century so kind of being shut in and trapped is sort of working in in different ways in the novel it's also about friendship your novel and it would have been tested during these times wouldn't it friendship really would have been tested absolutely and I think you know that is one of the really fascinating things about the story is that when you kind of delve down a little bit and you understand the context uh, for Eam you know the civil war just happened 
the village was really divided down the middle. You know, it wasn't one of those places where they were for the king or they were against the king. It was divided. But after the return of Second and the Act of Uniformity and the re- reintroduction of the Book of Common Prayer through the church, any ministers who refused to comply were basically kind of kicked out and exiled from their parishes. And this happened to Thomas Stanley, who had been the rector in Eam for several decades. A new young vicar had been brought in to replace him. Of course, you know, all the villagers who were outraged by Thomas Stanley's exile had no time for William Mompesson. And when it came, when the plague was you know, taking hold and rampant through the village, it was William Mompesson who decided to try to kind of bring the village together to make this really difficult decision to, to shut themselves away. But he knew that he he was going to have to rely on his predecessor. You know, he was going to have to reach out and he was going to have to get his help so that they could appeal to the village as one voice. And I think that really struck me. You know, the fact that these two men who would have had no time for each other, the fact that they did that, and then the village came together. You know, you can only imagine that those sorts of conflicts and decisions were, were probably being made in families all through that village. You know, there would have been people who had different opinions about whether they wanted to stay or whether they wanted to go and live in the in the caves on the on the outskirts of the village, which some some people had had done, you know. So yes, I imagine that what happened tested friendships and family as well as the whole community. And the Hemlock Cure by Joanne Byrne is published by Sphere. We're talking on Bookmark today to Ellie Seymour about her novel, The Royal Station Master's Daughters at War. Ellie, this is a, a saga, as I say, and it's it's going to span three books. You've got a lot of characters in it, a lot of things going on. How do you keep track of all that? Yes, it can get a bit confusing at times. So I have a whiteboard with lots of post-it notes. <laughs> That's what I rely on mostly for developing the book and the structure and the characters, having a character arc and uh, some kind of transformation or redemption at the end, and then trying to give a balance to all the sisters and the characters and being as realistic as I can to the times. A historian called Neil Storey helps me as well. He'll read through the draft and tell me if I've got it right or if I haven't or if something needs tweaking factually. He's a World War I and World War II historian, so I'm always grateful to have his eyes glance over my book too. And the choices that you make about the characters. So, so Jessie, for example, has a hearing impairment. Why, why did you give her that? I think in real life she she did. And I tried to be true to the characters. So Adrian in real life was married to Alfie, who was an organist at Cromer. And he, he did go off and fight with the artists and artillery regiment and it's interesting just researching that and finding out how when they were training they were based at the Tower of London. With the saga historical story like I've been writing you have to have like a character that everybody is rooting, readers are rooting for so that's where Maria comes along from the wrong side of the family and in real life Harry's father William was a station master at Audley End and Harry was one of 10 children and his wife died at 66 and Harry remarried at the age of 70, a lady of 28 years, and went on to have another three children. So Maria is one of those children. So when William died, you can imagine they would have lost their house that came with the job and they were out on the street 
neighbours would have been, you know, looking down their nose at them maybe, thinking, what, 70 years old and having all these children still? So I fictionalised Maria arriving in Wolferton and, and how she became involved in the community, but people had their own secrets. And, and then that's how it all comes together. So how much is truth and how much is fiction? Ah. <laughs> can, can you percentageize it, if that's the word? I would say the stories are mainly mainly fiction. Harry and his, and his three daughters and his wife, that's true. The Gallipoli story is true, but the rest is, is fiction. You describe this as probably romantic historical fiction if you had to put it in, into yes. a genre. But it can cover big issues. I mean, we have the issue of illegitimacy, which is tackled in there. Pacifism, when you look at as well. Both of those things can work. Big issues, obviously, enormously big at the time, and you can tackle them. Yep. So that was a true story about the captain who shot himself. And I was told that at Kingsley Museum when I went there to do some research and how his death had probably been, the cause of death had probably been hushed up because his father had been a famous musician who used to play for the king at Sandringham and they didn't want a scandal so I fictionalized that story and I thought gosh this is great but that kind of thing would have happened and I fictionalized how he was married to an actress and I have a a lot of fun doing that and Joey the little boy is is illegitimate yes that's uh, fiction that's but that would have been a big scandal I suppose and would have been quite common in those days because women often were put upon and the women's yeah. roles that you, you talk about in the novel, that was really interesting. Obviously, we, we probably know about um, the nursing and the land, although I didn't realise that uh, the land girls movement started there. But this, even though it was a desperately worrying time for the women, it was also a time of opportunity where they could step into other yes, jobs. Yes, and it was because they were so great at what they did in taking over men's jobs that they got the vote. Something I discovered when I was doing research for the book was that in 1917 there was a National Baby Week, the first week of July. The Nursing Federation then highlighted that more babies and infants under one year old died than men, British men on the battlefield. It's extraordinary, isn't it? From poverty, from illness, and they were highlighting this up and down the country. Again, you don't read about this in men's historical books, but every community held events, held parades, held church services. Queen Mary was the patron there, so I had my women from Wolferton going off there and being active in that and they were really campaigning hard for slum housing to be demolished and for new homes to be built and they were trying to pioneer free health care for babies because at that time in 1970 New Zealand had free health care for babies and infants and the women there were trying to get the same in England it was we had to wait until the end of World War Two before that happened. That's how wonderful they were. There was even a guard of honour of about 100 London mothers at Central Hall Westminster when Queen Mary came, you know, in an all-ladies orchestra playing. Women did wonderful things in those days. And is it true about the needlework? Yes, the gentleman's name is true. Who? Uh, so this is the men in the hospitals were encouraged to do... Needlework, needle and it wasn't, con- you know, and it was considered uh, an important part of their rehabilitation. So, if they were disabled with one arm, uh, and they would put the needle in their mouth somehow and and do it, it was incredible how they managed this. But they did some wonderful pieces, and their work was on display 
at the Central Hall Westminster during National Baby Week. So all that is true. How do you stop yourself when you're researching this, Ellie, going down an absolute rabbit hole? That is a problem because one link leads to another, especially (laughs) when you look at the newspaper archives. You do get great great story ideas. Yeah, I was going to say, you've probably got ideas for other novels. Well, let's hear your second choice of music now, which is by Elvis Presley, Suspicious Minds. Why this one? Well, um, I'm just sad because my parents always encouraged me when I was younger to write. And uh, I started writing at the age of 16 for a local newspaper. And they they were very proud of me. And it was my dad and my parents who both took me to Wolferton Museum when I was a child. And it was in private ownership then after it had closed. And all the memorabilia was there. And I was just transfixed by it. And that image is still in my mind. So I've dedicated this song particularly to my mum because she ended up with dementia. And she loved Elvis. And I used to take an Elvis impersonator into her care home for her birthdays to sing to her. And she would stand up at the front and, and sing this with him so I hope mum wherever you are up there I hope you can enjoy this at this moment we're caught in a trap I can't walk out Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio with Heifer's Bookshop the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876 our And our featured guest on Bookmark today is Ellie Seymour talking about her novel, The Royal Station Master's Daughters at War. When were you writing this, Ellie? Because it struck me one of the characters has scarlet fever and has to isolate. And it severely affects the lives of anybody, really, who's come into contact with this character. The idea of self-isolation and social distancing uh, obviously resonates with us. We. Were you writing this during lockdown? No, I. in fact, I got the three-book deal during lockdown. So, no, but I just knew that that uh, scarlet fever was prevalent at the time. And that's why I wrote about that. And one of the things that I think that you look at also is what it is to be a hero. The, obviously, the soldiers who come back from the front. We've got Perryman, who's a, a lawyer, and we've got the nurses who are very mm. heroic post-lockdown. Was that uh, in your mind? I think the characters at that time would have been very modest. I think Harry was very modest, but very respected. People behaved totally different in those times and, you know, were very respectful. And when you're writing about, as you say, a different time where people behave differently, but you're writing from the 21st century, how do you address the issues with a a modern-day sensibility, but trying to put that to one side, I'm supposing. So the moral judgments that might have been made 100 years ago, we wouldn't make those today. But how do you get in the head of the people from that time? Readers are are very intelligent. You can never underestimate the intelligence of readers. So you just have to be factual and you can't really cover up something terrible that happened. I think it's really in our descriptions of characters today that we show that sort of sensitivity so I think in my last one of my books I described one of my characters as having a horse-like face and my editor didn't like that so she (laughs) changed that but that would have been common and so the sort of names or derogatory names that might have been used in those times you're just much more sensitive to uh, 
to those issues. They're the key issues, I think. That and the moral judgments, I suppose, that tended to come down more heavily on women as ever. Yeah, and I think it's it's good to highlight those and remind people what life was like in those days. And readers will know. So we can't try and whitewash whitewash that. Well, let's hear now from uh, Katie Ford. Katie Ford's first novel, Living Dangerously, came out in 1995. Since then, there have been 26 more, as well as novellas and short story collections. She's a regular at the top of the bestseller charts with millions of readers worldwide. Her latest novel, A Wedding in Provence, is out in paperback. And when I spoke to Katie, I asked her to tell me what it's about. It's the second book in um, a little series of three books about three young women who went to did a cookery course in London in the 1960s. And the first story was about Lizzie in A Wedding in the Country. And this book is about Alexandra, A Wedding in Provence. Alexandra is quite an unusual heroine. She's one that decided exactly what she was going to do. And I had to scurry along behind her saying, oh, please don't make me do that. I don't know anything about that. But she insisted. And she is on her way to Switzerland when the story opens. She's an orphan, going to be a very wealthy woman when she comes into her fortune. But she hasn't come into her fortune, so she's very good at scrimping and saving. But her rich relations decided when they discovered that she was living in London with her friends and not quite leading the life that she was making out when she was writing letters home, they decided that she needed to go and live with them in Switzerland and go to a finishing school. But in order to get to Switzerland, you have to go through Paris. While she's there, she comes across a young woman whose shopping bag has broken. So she helps her. And it's a young American woman. And Donna, the young American woman, thinks that she's found Alexandra a lovely job in Paris. And Alexandra thinks, well, I can get this one past the relations because they'll, I'll say, well, I'm having a job in Paris, except it turns out that the job isn't in Paris, it's in Provence. And there she goes to a chateau and she meets three children. But of course, before she agreed to take the job, she saw the Count who owns the chateau and she did think she'd fallen in love at first sight. And so off she goes. But it's about her adventures in France and how she wins these children over. Actually, I hadn't really thought of this, but somebody else pointed out there is definitely a nod to the sound of music. I mean, I had a lot of fun writing it when I wasn't being terrified of being trying to write about France in the 60s. I mean, I have been to France a few times and I was alive in the 60s, although a bit younger than my girls would have been. But I mean, there's an awful lot about France I didn't know and had to research. But I did have a lot of fun. And I think, well, what would you do? You know, if you didn't have much money and you were in France, where would you get your clothes from? It'll be the local market where they'll sell clothes for the local workmen so you'll have to adapt the clothes there might be a second hand store all those things I had a lot of fun with it well I mean it and sounds incredibly uplifting a wedding in Provence what's not to like there exactly and there's a little bit of a mystery about whose wedding it's going to be we meet the girls that we met in the first book and so there's a little bit of reunion which was fun for me to write because of course I knew those people Usually I have to make people from scratch every time and I waste them. They only last one book and I cast them off. But in, in this particular series, I did have the same curls throughout and it was great fun. And you're famous for writing uplifting fiction, uplit, as they call it. And we, and we need that at the moment. My goodness, don't we? 
I think so. But then I think I always need uplift. There's always bad things, particularly women. They have a lot of things they have to do in their lives. I mean, they're very often looking after their grandchildren their, or their teenage children or their parents. They often have a job. And I like to think that I write books for intelligent women who are tired. That does cover a lot of us, really, because however intelligent we are, sometimes we just need to relax. Yes, your your fiction is uplifting. It might fall into the romantic fiction category as well. Do you find that there's um, a bit of snobbery about that category, about that genre? Yes, there always has been. And to be honest, I've rather given up thinking it'll ever be different. I think because it's mostly written by women, for women, I think there's a bit of misogyny in there. It's easy to read on the whole, although that doesn't mean it's easy to write. It's quite hard to write something that's easy to read. I mean, that's the skill. I mean, even people who write and love romantic fiction, if they're asked to pick their favourite book, they're unlikely to say it's Maeve Binchy or Jilly Cooper or Jill Mansell. They're more likely to choose Jane Austen or a non-romantic novel. And I've been guilty of this myself. And looking back, I just think, why didn't I stand up for my genre? But I didn't always because, we you know, we are so used to being put down. And I meet people at parties and some of them say, oh, you must meet so-and-so. She's read some of your books as if that makes her sort of an unusual, slightly lesser person. Oh, lots of people have read your books, Katie. I mean, you've had such massive success. Did you ever think when you started your writing career that you'd be having sold so many millions of books? Well, never, because when I started my writing career, it was eight years before I actually had a book accepted by a publisher and 10 years before I had a book on the shelves. So I never thought I'd be, you know, for a long time, I never thought I'd be published. But I knew I didn't want to give up. And I would say this to anyone who's trying to write, don't give up. And I think if you don't give up, you'll get there. And has your writing changed over the years, do you think? It's very difficult to say. Sometimes I read my early books and think, oh, they were so fresh. Oh, I had much more ideas. Oh, they were funnier. Sometimes I meet people who like my later books better. Sometimes I meet people saying, oh, Katie, I really loved your early books. And then there's a sort of pause in which I think to myself, but you don't like them so much now. I think they probably have changed. I do give myself bigger challenges now than I used to. I wouldn't have dreamt of setting a book at any time apart from the present period before. Um, But I'm so glad I did choose to write those three books in the 60s because I decided that and along came COVID. So instead of having to think, should I mention COVID, I didn't have to think about it because I was in the 60s and we didn't have COVID and we didn't have a lockdown and it was all much nicer. And what about the process, Katie, of writing? Has that changed for you or do you still write in the same way? I write more or less in the same way, but I have to plan a bit more. I'm not willing to discard writing in the way it once I would have gaily cut out loads of a book. I remember a lovely editor I had maybe cut out a whole chapter, which I had worked on quite hard, I have to say. But my editor said, well, this really, to be honest, doesn't add anything. And my agent at the time was furious because she'd liked that chapter. But now, although if, an, if my editor said cut out this chapter, I would do it in a heartbeat because I trust my editor I plan more carefully so it's less likely to happen. And I don't want to 
set off in any direction. I hope it's the right direction. I want to know that I can get my characters from where I start to the end without deviating too much on the way. And I think it's because I'm slower to write, but I suppose I also have more experience. So I think it's probably for those reasons, it's a little bit more planned now, a little bit more thought out. And often there is a romance at the centre of your stories. And you, you've celebrating a long marriage to to Desmond, but you say yourself that your your marriage sort of breaks all the rules. Really, you do all the things that people advise you not to do. <laughs> it, it, we do. We're we're terrible. I mean, we look at ourselves sometimes in sort of horror at the rules we break, but we go on being married and enjoying each other's company. I think as long as you do those things, and as long as you're kind to each other, you can break all the rules. I think being nice has got a lot going for it. I mean, if you your new best friend or your best friend said, oh, I've met a man, he's really nice. You might think, oh, that doesn't sound terribly exciting. But actually, niceness and kindness is what keeps you going through the long old years. So those rules that you break, things like uh, not going to sleep on an argument, all of those kinds of things. Do you think they are good guidelines? I mean, what really matters is if, you know, at the end of the day, the person you want to be sitting on the sofa with is the man you're married to. And I must say, Desmond and I, you know, we both do things during the day. I'm working. He has all sorts of things he does. But when we sit down in the evening and he lights the fire and they were there together, that that's the high spot of our day. You know, it's quite precious to us. But I can see that it'd be better if no one ever went to bed on an argument. But um, I just do think when you see these elderly couples and they say never a crossword, I just think, well, I don't know, one of you was giving in a lot. And does Desmond appear in your novels in some form or another? Oh, yes, he does. He did used to say that he always appeared as the baddie. And there were little characteristics. If I was very irritated by them, <laughs> I might put them in a book. I had a, a very um, book I enjoyed writing about farmers markets before they were everywhere. And the woman, my character, was actually a widow. And she used to think back to all the irritating things her husband did, like, and my husband does this, and it still drives me mad, and he's done it for 50 years, and nothing will ever change. He will use a mug, and then he'll swill it out. So he'll put water in, and he'll throw it around, and then he'll put it on the drainer, all around the edge, which is where you have put your mouth. He doesn't wash that. He thinks that mug is clean. But anyway, I gave those sort of things to the woman's very much beloved dead husband, and she said, you know, she thinks, well, I'd do anything to have someone doing that in my life now. And I do think of that myself, actually, and the bottle tops that aren't put on properly. So the fizz always goes or they drop off when you hold them by the top. You know, there'll come a time when I would do anything in order to get that back. That's probably what defines a marriage that's going to be OK. And I think after 50 years, I can probably say that we might, you know, make it now. Um, I never like to take anything for granted. It's when push comes to shove, you'd rather have all those irritations than not. And A Wedding in Provence by Katie Ford is published by Penguin. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Ellie Seymour about her book, The Royal Station Master's Daughters at War, which is published by Zafra. Ellie, Katie's saying there, that discussion that we had about people looking down their noses at romances and at sagas? That can be the case, but I just know from myself and my fellow authors how much hard work goes and an attempt to be as accurate as possible goes into those 
stories. So I don't attempt to be a great literary writer. I just want to be a good storyteller and give somebody some pleasure in reading my books and imagining that they're back in those times with my characters. But there are lots of sagas on television that everybody enjoys, such as Downton Abbey and uh, Bridgerton and The Crown. They're all great family sagas that people can't get enough of. So why do people look down their nose at the books? So I wonder maybe if the book covers could be changed a little bit to give them more of a sort of uh, upmarket look. What about your book cover? You've got two women on it. They're really pretty, but the book covers are designed by marketeers. They've got to catch the eye of readers on the bookshelves. And have you had feedback from people who've, who've read the novels who recognise that time? And I did. Were... I, had a, I had a lovely letter last week from a lady who told me how much her mother had enjoyed, had enjoyed it and imagined that she was back there. And it brought back lots of memories in the hospital too that we discussed earlier. And a question that we ask all our guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? Do you know what? I was recommended Verity by Colleen Hoover, what a star she is. And I really am enjoying that. There's so many twists and turns and I can't wait to read the end. And in terms of what's next for you, you've got the the final part of the trilogy to come. Where are you in that? Oh, I've so enjoyed that. I've actually just finished writing the first draft of book three and that isn't due out until next spring. So I've got time to work on editing in it and to give some thought to some future writing. Well, we'll come back to you for your last choice of music in just a moment, but a heads up that our featured guest on the next show is Wenyan Lu talking about her novel The Funeral Crier. We'll hear from Melanie Levenson talking about her novel A Jewish Girl in Paris and Sally Harris chatting about Seahurst, her latest gothic ghost story. But we'll sign out now, Ellie, with your last choice of music, which is Adventure of a Lifetime by Coldplay. Why this one? I love it. It makes me feel so happy. I love dancing around the house to this with my family. Family and my sons bought me tickets to see Coldplay last year in London and they've bought me tickets again to see Coldplay in Manchester this year and I can't wait. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.